episode contains stories of intense physical violence, suicide and rape. Listener discretion advised. Hello there, welcome back. Sorry it has been so long, it's been a few months at this point. Um, I was on vacation and then was sick for pretty much the whole entire month of July. Um, I've been getting this sinus infection that I just cannot get rid of. So my voice wasn't really up to recording standards. And the episode that I am currently recording took quite a lot of research. Um, so it was just a lot of, a lot of work. But anyways, we're back, thankfully. Uh, It's been a crazy hot summer here in New York, uh, literally melting. Uh, And it would seem everywhere in the world is really, Europe has been getting hit with it too. Um, So yeah, mostly I've just been reading a lot of books, watching a lot of TV. I finally got around to watching Euphoria. I know, probably the last person on earth. And I was addicted just like it seems that the entire world was addicted. Um, so also anyone who knows me knows that I am a huge Beyonce fan, have been since day one of Destiny's Child. And so I was so excited for Renaissance Act One and I knew it wouldn't disappoint because the Queen Bee never disappoints, but nothing could have prepared me for how amazing it really is. The transitions and the production, the lyrics, it is just wow. Um, I think currently my standout song is Heated. I just love it. And she, how she just goes off towards the end of the song is so damn crazy. This woman is phenomenal, truly. And I am so excited for the inevitable tour I have been to every single one of her tours, apart from the Lemonade Tour, um, which I had to miss through no choice of my own. Still salty about that. So super excited for that. So anyway, today's episode is a long one. So I've broken it down into two parts. So let's get into it. don't know, Taylor Armstrong was an original cast member of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Her abuse at the hands of her husband was revealed in an episode of season two of the show. And this was not an intentional reveal. Apparently, every cast member knew Taylor was being abused. But Camille Grammer was the first person to mention it on camera when she said famously, we don't say that he hits you. What followed later in the season was totally shocking and still remains to this day the most shocking incident of any of the Housewives franchises. Taylor Armstrong was born Shayna Lynette Hughes. Her earliest childhood memory is also her clearest. It laid the foundation for who she is and everything that came after. At two years old, she was sleeping in her parents' bed with her mom when her dad came in and started yelling and punching her mother in the face. Taylor grabbed at his hair, trying to get him to stop. They got away from him and ran outside and drove to her aunt's house. Her mom has since told her that her father was a very jealous man. She divorced him by the time Taylor was three. Her mother struggled as she had never been by herself. She had to work multiple jobs. She would always cry and this made Taylor feel guilty as she knew if she hadn't been born, her mother's life would be better. The vague memory Taylor has of her father fills her with dread. He used to always flex his muscles to show how strong he was. It didn't make her feel safe. She felt intimidated. He would use her birth name when he was angry, Shayna Lynette Hughes. The association is why she has always hated her name. She was embarrassed that they were struggling. They were always moving as her mother tried to keep up with her finances. It made her feel unsettled and insecure. She thinks it created the anxiety she has been plagued with throughout her life. The absence of consistent guidelines in their household is what Taylor thinks amplify the instability and vulnerability she already felt from the abuse she had witnessed, the ensuing divorce and her father's absence. Oklahoma was a very traditional state where domestic violence was never discussed. Women and children lived in quiet fear. Taylor didn't love or value herself and felt unworthy of love. 
By not addressing these issues, she was prone to trouble with boys and she needed constant validation from them. So began a lifelong pattern of always having to have a boyfriend. Without one, she became more insecure, nervous and introverted. When Taylor was 22, she got a permanent implant in her upper lip. A few years later, she got her breasts done. She kept trying to alter her external appearance, hoping that she would eventually change into someone she liked. At this point, she had changed her name to Shayna Taylor after her mom got married to her stepdad and her college friends had started calling her Taylor. This was a relief to her as she felt to put distance between her and her childhood. After she left graduate school, she began working in pharmaceutical sales for which she traveled a lot. She met a man named Chris during one of these conferences. She learned his family owned the company she worked for. She made it obvious she was interested, but Chris was not. But she relentlessly pursued him. Eventually, he gave in. When the conference ended, she stayed in Florida to be with him. She quit her job because it would have been a conflict of interest to date him and also report to his dad at work. So basically, she gave up her apartment, moved to a new state and left a very lucrative job for a man who she had to persuade to be with her. Clearly not a very good situation to be in and not a very healthy way of doing things. She also says she changed her entire personality for him. She was so fearful of losing him that she set out to be whoever he needed her to be. What made her feel safe in the relationship was how it consumed her whole life, taking away any responsibility she might have for making her own decisions or forging her own path. She felt that being his girlfriend gave her all the self-worth she needed. Within a year, they were engaged, but after a while, things became strained. As she was a stay-at-home woman without any interest or activity, she became bored and stir-crazy. The stable home she had dreamed of became mundane and predictable. Five weeks before the wedding, Chris called it off. She was devastated as she had given up everything to be with him. Now without someone to define who she was, she had nothing, not even a clear sense of herself. So she moved to Fort Lauderdale to rediscover herself, only to find that person had never really existed. She had no idea who she was or what she wanted. She legally changed her name to Taylor and took the last name after her favorite designer, Tom Ford. Her good friend Tom suggested she take over a textile business his friend was selling so she could move to California to be closer to her mother and stepdad who would move to Orange County. So in 2004, she moved to a condo in Beverly Hills. When Taylor saw Russell Armstrong from across the room, she knew that she had found her man. She was sitting at a bar in the Four Seasons waiting for a friend. After chatting to a few people in Russell's group, she learned they were launching a tech company. Her friend was also in tech, so they all agreed to have dinner together. Russell was very charismatic and the tiniest bit flirtatious, but mostly remained aloof. His lack of interest only made her want him more. She gave him her number, even though he hadn't asked. Instead, he passed her number to his friend who had first approached Taylor at the bar. Russell's friend kept calling to ask her out and it did cross her mind that she should hang out with him to get closer to Russell, but she ended up bumping into him soon after. He was pleasant and charming, but again, not interested. He eventually asked for her number and said he'd take her to lunch. She felt he was only doing it because he felt obligated to, but she didn't care. She was smitten, but he didn't call her and his friend continued to ask her out. She continued saying no until he asked her to Russell's surprise birthday party, but she didn't want Russell to think she was dating his friend and she didn't want him to see, she didn't want to see him with another woman. So she stayed at home. Later that week, he invited her to a Christmas party and she went thinking she would at least meet some new people. When she got there, it was mostly older rich men and young half-dressed women looking for their next sugar daddy. I feel here like this is so judgmental of her considering how she is relentlessly pursuing Russell. Um, I have no doubt she's into these guys, but it's also not a coincidence then that the men she ends up with are also rich. So the fact that she's judging these other women kind of seems a little off to me. It felt sleazy at the party, so she decided to leave. Apparently, this reaction was what made Russell think she wasn't the kind of girl he thought she was. So the next time he ran into her, he was much more engaging. He told her, You're a nice girl. I'm not the kind of guy you want to go out with. I'm not an easy guy. He had two sons with two different exes, and he warned her repeatedly that she shouldn't get mixed up with him. But she took his candor as a sign that he was honest and responsible, and therefore just the kind of guy she wanted to date. 
Once she had made up her mind about a person, she wanted to believe they were perfect. So she dismissed any information that might suggest otherwise. And this here is a classic case of being the perfect target for an abuser. Eventually, Russell took her out on a date on Valentine's Day. When he arrived, he seemed pleased with her appearance. He told her she looked beautiful and made her feel amazing. He gave her a gift, a Frank Mueller watch. Russell was always the picture of poise and success, from his impeccable suit to the silver Mercedes. Their conversation was effortless. He was incredibly charming and mature, strong and confident. He held her hand as he drove. When she asked, he said he was taking her to Dolce and she replied, oh, of all places for us to go. Taylor had recently gone on a date with a man who frequented this restaurant. She thought it would be awkward if he was there and she was honest with Russell about it. She didn't want to hurt the man's feelings if he saw her there with Russell. Russell didn't have much of a response, so she figured it didn't bother him. She was relieved to see the man wasn't there. However, when the waiter left them alone, Russell started in on her. Well, I didn't know you were fucking the bartender here. She looked up in surprise. She couldn't believe he had spoken to her like that, and he sounded genuinely angry. It's very unusual here um, for an abuser to show their aggression so early on. I mean, this is a first date. Normally, they're on their absolute best behavior right at the beginning. Taylor quickly made excuses for his behavior. She tried to calm him down. She said he wasn't the bartender, that he's friends with the owner and hangs out there a lot. But Russell continued to degrade the man until finally she had tears in her eyes. Try not to let the rest of the restaurant see. She assumed that as usual, if someone was angry, it was her fault. Rather than standing up to him, she attempted again to calm him down. She said she was sorry and she just wanted him to know in case they ran into the guy. He apologised and said that other women had burned him in the past. Again, this is another pattern. Abusers will often speak of how badly they've been treated by other women in the past. And this is both to garner sympathy and to make their victims want to do everything to please them and to excuse their irrational anger. So it's like you want to make him think that, okay, all these other women treated you like shit, but I'm different and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to be the perfect partner. Soon he was his usual charming self again. When she woke the next morning, a whirlwind of texts were sent between them. Russell would often send her texts like, I'm sitting in a boardroom of attorneys and all I can think about is you. She was overjoyed with how romantic he was. Before she knew it, she was falling in love. This again is a perfect example of love bombing. They were never really apart after that, except when Russell had to travel for business. He loved his business more than anything. She began spending time with his business associates and potential clients, and she loved the lifestyle. Their social calendar was always full, and they went to dinner most nights. He was spontaneous, which made their life together so much fun. Russell loved to brag about their relationship. He would say she's crazy about me to their friends, and he was right. As she had always done, Taylor withdrew from all other areas of her life to put all of her energy into him. Her friend Jennifer expressed to her that she was feeling frustrated because she was always with Russell now. Russell told her he really wanted her to meet his boys, which was a big deal, of course. She went out with Jennifer and had planned to meet Russell and the boys the next day. They met with a few of Jennifer's friends and went dancing after dinner in the spider room in Hollywood. Taylor texted with Russell throughout the night. The next day when she called him about their plans for the weekend, he didn't answer. He didn't respond to her texts. At first, she figured he was just busy with the boys. After an hour, all of her insecurities came back. She started texting and texting him. Finally, he responded. I'm just going to spend the weekend with my kids. He didn't respond again. She was confused and upset. She didn't hear from him for a couple of days, during which she was a total mess. Uh, he is just dangling her here basically in order to up his control of her you know it's like they will pile on and pile on all this love and affection for you which is the love bombing and then out of nowhere they will take all of that back and not contact you and usually this is after some type of argument and then they just leave you dangling and dangling and dangling with no responses. And it's just, like I said, trying to gain even more control of you. This should have been a warning for her, but all she wanted was to find a way to patch things up. Finally, she called him and he answered. She was relieved, but nervous. He accused her of hooking up with an athlete that was Jennifer's friend from the other night. 
He said his friend had called him and told him. He wouldn't even give her a chance to defend herself. They had already agreed to go to a charity event before this happened and they decided to still attend together. He wasn't particularly warm to her but he had never been a publicly affectionate person. They were sitting at a table with his associates and later in the night he leaned over to her and hissed, I know that you fucked that athlete. She was embarrassed as she looked around to see if anyone had heard. You're just like everybody else in this town, he said. She could barely keep her composure. He got off from the table and left her there with his associates. She started texting and calling but he wouldn't answer. She got her car from the valet and raced to his house. She caught up to him. He finally answered her. Fuck you, he said. You're a whore. I don't ever want to see you again. Get the fuck out of my life. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And he hung up on her. She called her friend Dwight, who said he was an asshole and why was she bothering to follow him? But she'd made up her mind that Russell was the one. She followed him to his house. When they got inside, he screamed and screamed at her. He kept trying to get away from her and she kept following him, crying and begging him to listen to her. Finally, he went into one of his bedrooms to sleep. She took a bath, as she always did when she was upset. Russell came in while she was in the tub. You're so skinny, it's disgusting. You're like a skeleton. It's not sexy, he said. She felt so vulnerable, being naked in front of him while he criticised her so venomously. Finally, he went back to bed and she sat there crying. She should have left his house that night, but she was hooked on the roller coaster ride of the relationship and the need it brought out in her to please him. He seemed to be hooked too. Instead of breaking up, they established a pattern. He flew into a rage over the smallest thing. She apologised and cried and begged and pleaded and vowed to herself that she would find a way to be so perfect that he'd never get angry again. From the beginning, she began compiling a careful mental inventory of all the many things she needed to avoid doing or saying to keep the peace in their relationship. Top of this list was the fact that Russell had to immediately be able to reach her at all times or else he would fly into a rage. One day she was at a spa when her cell phone rang but she couldn't answer as she was already in the middle of a treatment. When she saw that it was Russell she was immediately panic stricken. She called him back. What are you doing? Nothing, she replied. I know you're not doing nothing because I've been trying to reach you for 15 minutes. You're obviously with someone, he said. She told him she was in the middle of a facial. You're a fucking liar. I know you're with someone. She told him to call the front desk at the spa and check. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of my life, he replied and hung up. She continued to call him all day, but he wouldn't pick up. They had plans that night and when they met at the restaurant, he lit into her. If you ever lie to me again about what you're doing, that's it. She started to believe he was right. Maybe it was her fault. He was mad because she hadn't known to tell him exactly what she was doing. I'm sorry it won't happen again, she said. So... Note here how he is checking up on her and then completely irrationally demands to know where she is when she doesn't answer. And when she says, oh, nothing, he assumes she's with another guy because she, in his eyes, lies about being at a spa because she had said nothing. Something we all say when we're not doing anything special, like, oh, what are you up to today? Oh, nothing. And then not only that, but he actually gets her to apologize to him when she has done nothing wrong. So he has complete control over her now. This is when we often see the abuse start to escalate. The problem was that no matter how diligently she followed Russell's every command, down to how she should dress, how she should behave, he kept changing the rules and he never gave her warning of this until it was too late. When he got mad, his default reaction was to tell her to get out of his life, which triggered her deepest fears of abandonment and made her feel even more determined to make him stay. This is something that my abuser would do too. He would like open the door of the apartment and tell me to leave, knowing that we had just moved to a new country where I literally knew nobody, had no money, and he knew I had nowhere to go. So he didn't really want me to leave. He just wanted to show that I could only rely on him and I needed him. And therefore that was even more control over me. Confusingly, at the same time, she made the greatest memories of her life with Russell. They traveled together, went out together, spent hours talking about what they wanted for their futures. He was seven and a half years older and his maturity and experience allowed him to be like the father she'd always wanted. He had a successful business and real responsibilities, including children, and the stability of his life was comforting to her. If you're looking for a man to make up for what you lacked in your relationship with your father, this is 
never going to end well, even if it's not an abusive relationship. A man should be a partner in your life, someone that is equal and not there as a replacement for a parental figure. From the beginning, Russell made it clear he was in charge of things. One of his favourite phrases was, I'm driving this bus. If you think this is a relationship of equality, you're wrong. This is not a 50-50 deal. He always said this in a slightly sarcastic tone and Taylor would laugh when he did, but she knew he was sincere. He would maintain his control of her by monitoring her phone. He would take it out to the garage and scour her call log and text for reasons to be suspicious of her. She had the name of an NBA player on her phone. This was something that always bothered him. He would say, you fucked him. He used to take care of you. He bought the condo you live in. There were red flags blowing everywhere at this point. Today, Taylor feels embarrassment looking back as it really speaks to her lack of self-worth and abandonment issues that she would get involved with someone when she could see the problems from the start. Of course, we know this to be another pattern of abuse. She was too busy making sure she didn't lose him to pay attention to the problems. She didn't realise he'd already begun the grooming process. Russell had such a quick temper that Taylor would often have no idea what had set him off. If she was too talkative to his business associates, if she wasn't talkative enough, if she was spending too much time talking to her girlfriend at dinner, if she gave Russell too much attention, she was needy, but he also didn't like when she didn't give him enough attention. And whenever he got like this, he would get up and leave her there, no matter where they were, usually with his business associates who she didn't know. At times, she didn't have her own car and would have to ask someone for a ride home or take a cab. Just imagine how embarrassing that would be. One time he left her alone in the dark on Laurel Canyon Drive in a black sheet. She called her mom who was visiting them. She found out when Russell had gotten home, he had told her mother that Taylor had decided to stay on with friends who would drive her home later. A complete lie. Taylor was embarrassed her mother had witnessed how little respect the man she loved had for her. As she later found out, Russell left that night because he felt Taylor was too impressed by a magician who had been entertaining guests with car tricks. He said she had embarrassed him with her dumb blonde behaviour. Taylor wasn't the only one Russell had constant conflict with. He had two kids with two different women, one of which was suing him for palimony. It wasn't uncommon for him to scream on the phone during a business call. He wrote vicious emails to people when he didn't get his way. Taylor always excused his behaviour. But some incidents were hard to justify. They once bumped into a guy named Brian who was Russell's old neighbour. Russell had attended a party at Brian's and had thought at one point during the night that Brian had disrespected him in front of his guests. He left, only to return after the party, saying he was going to kick Brian's ass. They fought inside the house and then ended up with Russell dragging Brian into the swimming pool and he held him under the water until he had proven that he was worthy of Brian's respect. Brian laughed as he told how Russell had almost killed him, but Taylor didn't think it was a laughing matter. Taylor felt a huge sense of relief when Russell started opening up about his childhood, which she felt was much worse than anything she had ever experienced. Again, we've talked about this before. This is another pattern. We've actually seen this come up in almost every story I've covered here. Um, the abuser will start to open up about their trauma in order to lure you further into their web. Russell had grown up in government-sponsored housing in the southwest of Dallas, which he often compared to South Central LA or Compton. He was in constant street fights trying to defend himself. His father used to take him to bars and order him a Shirley Temple while they hung out. His parents had a volatile relationship, which they didn't keep hidden from him. When he was eight, he watched his best friend get shot and killed by a security guard. The man had thought the stick he was holding was a weapon. She felt horrible for him. She couldn't believe the man she loved had been through so much. She wanted to mother him and make up for all that he had lost. She now understood his anger and the difficulty he had trusting people. She wanted to hold him and tell him she would be there for him. She believed if she could get through to him, she could change him. She could be the one to help him get over his childhood pain and trust again. And this is exactly what he wanted by telling her this story. Every time I read an abuse survivor recount their story, something extremely similar to this will almost always pop up. It happened in my own story. Part of Taylor also felt safe being with a man who would brag about beating people up. He made it clear he would do anything to keep her safe. Having that shield around her made all of his aggression towards her worth it. Think about how messed up that is. 
But again, that is exactly why she makes the perfect victim. This is exactly what a perpetrator will do to your mindset. Taylor became addicted to the chaos and unpredictability. Their life together was exciting and fun. She assumed his business was doing well as he would always cover the $1,500 to $2,000 dinner costs. It felt good to be with a successful man who would take care of her. He would take her to Miami or Vegas spontaneously. One time on a trip to Miami, they were in a club. Russell's mood had changed suddenly. He leaned over and said, It's so embarrassing the way you laugh all the time. She apologised and quickly looked for a way to calm down. By the time they got back to the hotel, he clearly hadn't. You have scars all over your back from having sex in the Beverly Hills Hotel in the Four Seasons, he screamed at her. He was furious. You're a whore. You fucked all these guys and now you've got scars to prove it. It went on for at least an hour. He raged and screamed and kept grabbing her arms to get her attention. He wouldn't listen to her. He was so convinced of this story that she started to question herself. Maybe she did have scars in her back. This is a clear example of our lovely friend gaslighting. By the end of the night, she was examining her back for scars. She caught eyes with Russell in the mirror. His eyes had changed. He had a fixed stare on his face. This was one of the first times she saw this look and it unsettled her because it was like he wasn't even there in the room with her. I've said this about my abuser also. He would get this dead look in his eyes. I would say that it was like a blackness, like a demon had taken over his body. Nothing about the man I thought I knew was there in him when he had this look in his eyes. Taylor truly began to wonder if he had some type of mental illness where he was hearing voices that were giving him information about her. She knew his mother had had a mental illness called hypomania. Hypomania is a mild form of mania marked by elation and hyperactivity. And his mother was in the process of being institutionalized for it. After a few hours, she was able to calm him down enough to go to bed, but she couldn't sleep. The next day, he didn't apologize or retract his story. Every time they fought after that, he would bring it up. Anytime she got a bruise or a mark on her body, he would claim she got it from having violent sex with someone else. His rage would often make her sad that he couldn't see the truth of how much she loved him. He told her often that he felt the two women he had had children with had taken advantage of him. His first wife he was with for only eight months. The second woman he had dated for a year and she had sued him for five million in a palimony lawsuit. He thought they were both crazy. His first wife had been arrested for a DUI while speeding with their son in the car. He said they fought constantly with her throwing dishes and once even cutting the curtains in half while consumed with rage. She had once tried to knock off his glasses during an argument. When he held his hand out to stop her, her face ran into his palm. Like, come on. And she turned the incident into a domestic violence charge against him. He said his former fiancé had stolen his financial documents and hid them in the wall of their guest house. She believed all of these stories, but she came to realise that Russell would often embellish or make up stories to make him seem more sympathetic. This is another pattern of an abuser. He is so obviously trying to make his exes look bad and to find a cover story as to why he had a domestic violence charge against him. Always look for how a man talks about other women, especially women he has or has had in his life. How does he speak about his exes? If the common denominator is him, then chances are very likely that he is actually the bad guy. Within the first few months of their relationship, Taylor ran into his former fiance. She felt nervous, but the woman smiled at her and said, you seem like a nice girl, you should run for the hills. And rest assured that if you're driving, especially driving in his car, he is recording you. And then she left. In her naivety, Taylor dismissed her warning as more evidence of her being a scorned ex, but she never mentioned the incident to Russell. When they were first getting to know each other, Russell would ask Taylor endless questions where he would press for greater and greater detail, almost in an investigative sort of way, as if he were trying to dig up dirt on her or catch her not telling him the truth. And we know that this is exactly what he's doing. Another pattern. One day, Russell showed her that he had done a background check on her and printed multiple pages of information about her, including former addresses and names of her neighbours during those times. He even posed as an employer and called her former college to get information about her. 
she came across an open screen on his computer which revealed he had used a service called US Search to look up her license plate. He told her he had access to this site as he had a client who was in the CIA. Instead of seeing this as a red flag, Taylor let him explain it all away. I'm just trying to get to know you because I've been burned. I just want to make sure I know everything about you so I don't get myself in another situation with the gold digger. She was overjoyed when Russell finally asked her to live with him. She moved in a week later. While on the phone to Dwight a week after she moved in, she discovered something while trying to print a document for the computer her and Russell shared. The printer wasn't working, so she called under the desk to disconnect it in hopes of making it work. She saw that two hooks had been nailed to the underside of the desk and it held a recording device which was turned on and taping. She played the files and it was all audio recordings of her. She started to shake and cry. She confronted him with it. He said it wasn't that big of a deal, that he just didn't know her well and had been burned in the past and thought it would be an easier way to get to know everything about her more quickly. Like, he has no problem asking her to move into his house and leaving her alone there when, according to him, he doesn't know her well enough yet. It just doesn't make any sense. But again, you will listen to anything an abuser tells you. You will believe everything they say. Taylor said she couldn't understand why he didn't just trust her, that it really hurt her feelings. He said, if you're not doing anything wrong, I don't know why you care. That she could also record him because he too wasn't doing anything wrong. He always knew just what to say to convince her. But Russell could always make something into nothing. You said to Dwight earlier in the week that his contractor was cute, he said. She couldn't believe Russell had had the time to even go through all of the recordings every night without her knowing. She explained that the contractor was gay and she was saying it for Dwight because Dwight is also gay. You said he was cute, he said, but Russell didn't care. You're obviously into this contractor. He told her it wasn't going to work and she should move out. Now he had her attention. And so once again, she went along with whatever he said in order to keep them together. She thought about his ex's warning to her. She realized what she said was probably true. For the next six years, Taylor always assumed she was being recorded in the car and at home. Like, just imagine living your life like that. One of her housekeepers later told Taylor that she had seen a small tape recorder under a side table in their bedroom. Taylor now can't even imagine how many hours he must have spent over the years listening to her singing in the car. Soon enough, it became the norm. And even today, she sometimes forgets there's no one listening anymore. Years after, while getting dressed one day, she glanced at the computer screen. A web browser was open to her email account and the cursor was moving over the screen. All of the emails were hers, but the account wasn't in her name. She remembered Russell used a program that allowed him to log into their home computer remotely from his office to retrieve files he had worked on at home. He was reading her email, of course. It was unsettling to watch the cursor go through her emails and know that he was reading them while in his office. She decided to call him. She played dumb and said they needed to call the cops and the computer guy because he was clearly hacking their computer. He said she was crazy and it was nothing. She hoped that if she pushed him, he would admit it was him. He said they'd talk about it later. He kept making light of her fears and nothing ever came of the situation, but she thinks he knew she was on to him. She later checked the settings and saw that he had set it so all of her emails were forwarded to him the moment they were sent. She didn't change the settings or confront him. She knew he would do what he wanted to do. A part of her had come to believe him that if she did have anything to hide, it didn't make a difference if he violated her privacy. At this point, he had begun to distance her from any control or knowledge of their finances under the guise of taking care of her. It made some sense to her that Russell was paranoid about his money. She still kept telling herself that once he got to know her, all of the suspicion and rage would go away. Her friends and family weren't so convinced. She got a call from her mother who told her Dwight had called her and expressed concern for her safety. Dwight had told her to leave Russell and each time she made excuses for his behaviour. She felt betrayed that he told her mother and went in protective mode of Russell. She said her mother was overreacting. The more her mother pushed, the more defensive she became to her. She said she didn't appreciate their meddling in her relationship. In the months before she started dating Russell, it had become increasingly clear that she was going to need to move her textile business to China if she wanted it to remain financially viable. After looking through her books, Russell felt like it wouldn't be a good use of the money it would take to make the switch and that they would do better to invest the money in another venture. So he suggested she shut it down and she agreed. So here he is taking away any independence that she has left. 
After they'd been dating for three months and living together for one, Russell started talking about them having a child. She'd always been neutral on the topic, happy if it happened, but not one of her goals in life. But as usual, Russell had strong feelings on the subject and she soon began to see things his way. He flattered her by saying she had to do it as she would make a great mother. He kept bringing it up when she didn't agree right away. He said it was a disservice to deny a child the love she had for him. This was what finally changed her mind, the acknowledgement that he was aware of her love for him. They got pregnant right away. There was a catch. Russell only wanted to keep the baby if it was a girl because he already had two boys. So imagine now he has convinced her so much of something she doesn't really want to do, getting her to a point where she's now excited about it, only to then say if you're if it's a boy, then you're not having it. Luckily, it was a girl. That's where his involvement with an interest in the pregnancy ended. She called him crying during a particularly rough day. She said she was emotional and felt so alone. He said, you are alone. You're the only one that's pregnant. I've got to go. And he hung up. She felt more isolated than ever. She buried her feelings so that her pregnancy wouldn't affect him. At this point, they had fallen into a pattern where Russell would lash out at Taylor about every six weeks. I think this is a common misconception that if you're with an abuser, that you're constantly being yelled at, hit, etc. But that isn't true. I used to go days, weeks, sometimes even months at a time where everything would be okay, but it never lasts. And I think that's part of it too. I think they're trying to almost make you seem, make it seem like oh, it's fine now and I'm better now and everything is good to kind of keep you there because if it's bad every day, there's more chance that you're going to want to get out. Whereas like sometimes you think, oh, it's almost worth going through the ship because of how good it can be. It was almost as if Russell could feel himself letting his guard down so he would create some reason to push Taylor away. He first showed her what he was really capable of when she was about three or four months pregnant. His mother and sons were in the kitchen eating a pizza Taylor had made them while she got ready to go to dinner her and Russell were attending. When Russell arrived home, he grabbed Taylor by the throat and shoved her against the wall. He held her up by the neck and brought his face close to hers. If you ever again serve my kids a pizza without a vegetable, I'll kill you. You have just humiliated me in front of my mother. She cried. He let go of her. You're such a wounded lamb. You just crumble at every little thing. You're such a baby, go cry in the corner. He told her he was just going to go to the event by himself. Even though this was the first time he had been physically violent to her, she wanted nothing more than to be close to him. She begged to go with him. I can completely understand this. You're so devastated and so desperate for them to return to normal or the normal that you think that they are, to just hold you and apologize and tell you that it's okay and they're sorry. Taylor finished getting ready even though he didn't answer her. He let her go eventually but ignored her during the whole event. Taylor had mixed feelings about what Russell would be like as a father. He loved spending time with his boys and she never saw a time he was physically or verbally abusive toward them. He never yelled in front of them but at the same time he loved his work and had very little time for anyone. She could tell the boys didn't get as much attention from him as they would have liked. He had told her up front that he didn't plan to be a hands-on dad and he didn't change diapers. I mean, can you actually imagine that? What father doesn't want to take care of his child? Something as basic as changing a diaper and the fact that like he basically persuaded her to have a child and then he's like, but you know, you're the one that's going to have to take care of it. He would show a blade or not at all for her Lamaze classes, which really embarrassed her. That summer, Russell proposed to her. She was happy and excited. Right before their wedding, Russell took her for lunch and told her he'd filed for bankruptcy. He said the palimony lawsuit wasn't going to go away and he'd been advised to file. Taylor would later find out that this lawsuit was far from his only source of financial trouble. But at this point, she still believed everything he told her. When she was seven months pregnant, Russell decided she should go and get fingerprinted. These would then be sent to the FBI and the DOJ. He also requested copies of her birth cert, passport, driver's license and driving record for the past 10 years. She obliged. 
In October 2005, they got married in Mexico. On the day of the ceremony, she had a sense of foreboding. She knew it wasn't a good idea and should be happening. But after they exchanged their rings, Russell pulled out a necklace, a cross, which he had engraved with his and his son's initials, with tailors in the middle. I need you to be the glue that holds our family together, he said. It was so out of character for him that she felt incredibly moved. The gift has always earned, meant the most to her as it showed her how much he did love her and showed his sensitive side. Um, so she's just grasping at the tiniest of things at this point. I mean, if someone is giving me a gorgeous sentimental gift like that, that's great and lovely. But if you're someone that also abuses me mentally and physically, then I mean it doesn't matter how sentimental a gift is, you know, it's not going to excuse it. But at this point, she is taking anything she can get because she is still so far invested in this relationship. Their daughter, Kennedy, was born in February 2006. They added her initials to the cross, their family complete. While Russell wasn't a hands-on dad, he still expected to control many of the decisions they made about raising Kennedy. Taylor wanted a breastfeed, but he thought it was gross. A woman's breasts are made for a bikini, he said. The most disgusting misogynistic comment. He said if he saw her breastfeeding, that it would be hard for him to think of her breasts in a sexual way again. Oh, boo fucking who, Russell. But for the first few days, Taylor still tried to breastfeed. He was at the office for all but her nighttime feeds, which she did in the nursery out of view of Russell. Imagine having to hide the fact that you're breastfeeding from your own child's father. I mean, it's insane. Two or three days after Kennedy was born, Russell went on a trip to Australia. So gross. Two or three days after your child is born that you basically begged your wife to have and you're just going to piss off to Australia. Taylor had a live-in baby nurse and was able to finally get the hang of breastfeeding. By the time Russell was scheduled to return, she stopped producing milk. The nurse said she'd never seen that kind of psychological reaction to another human being. Russell had complete control over her body, even when he wasn't there. Taylor knew it was more important than ever to keep her marriage together as she didn't want Kennedy growing up like she had. Russell only grew her fears. If you leave, you'll be out on the street. I won't take care of you. You and Kennedy will be living in a cardboard box. To even think about saying this about your daughter, it makes me absolutely sick to my stomach. And I have no doubt that he would have let it happen too. And again, this is a child that he persuaded his wife to have. For a few months after Kennedy was born, their life was relatively calm. Of course, Russell still kept control over all aspects of her life. He'd established a rule that if she spent under $500, she didn't have to clear it with him, as long as she didn't buy several $500 items on the same day. I mean, I'm going to say this seems quite reasonable. $500 is a lot of money to spend in a day. But then again, they were pretty rich. But then he began scrutinizing her credit card bill every month. She began dreading seeing her credit card statement on his computer. He would want a detailed account of each and every moment. Who were you with at this restaurant on this date, etc. She knew it was important to him that she looked good, but he wasn't concerned about her wearing certain designers as a sign of status or anything like that. What was more likely to set him off was her wearing a dress he thought made her look too thin or was going to get too much attention. He could be incredibly blunt and cruel about it. One night she dressed in a green halter dress which she felt really good in, especially a few months after giving birth. He told her she looked like a whore. It completely deflated her. When they were out together, she always policed her behaviour so she didn't offend him. She had to be careful to remain available to him when they were out. One night, she went out with her friend Linda Thompson to a charity shopping event. She knew to always have her phone out on the table so she could answer his calls and texts, but on this night, she was having so much fun that she forgot. She saw she had several missed calls from him. Her stomach twisted with anxiety. He said he didn't know what the fuck she was doing or who the fuck she was with. When she told him, he said she was lying and was with someone because she wasn't answering her phone. Taylor knew that Linda intimidated him because she was friends with so many celebrities and was well-liked around town. He was nervous she would meet new people through her and he would lose his control of her. She tried to enjoy the rest of the night but was nervous about what would happen later when she got home. 
this is oh, the absolute worst feeling like you should feel happy and relaxed and relieved to be turning your key in the door every night to go home and not the complete opposite like I remember that dread so well and I've spoken about it before like I'd be so happy anytime I was out of the house and doing things by myself even if I was just at work whatever I was doing and then I would turn up my street and we were about halfway um up the street in a house that was split into apartments and the house was so big that it would it kind of came out a little further on the street than the other houses and as soon as I would look up and see the house instead of being like yay like I'm almost home like I do now when I see my house now when I'm coming home from work and I'm like oh my god I'm at home so excited to get to chill and eat and whatever I would start to get the like pit of anxiety that would just rise up and rise up and rise up on my stomach and then I would get to the front door and I would turn and I always remember that turning of the key and that's just something that always sticks out to me and being like I don't know what's on the other side of this door is it going to be a good day is it going to be a bad day what's going to happen and it's just the worst the worst feeling and it's something that I always appreciate now whenever I go home whenever I'm like walking in my backyard to my front door and just that like happiness of like being able to open the door nobody's here everything is where it should be and I can just relax and be myself like I just will never stop appreciating that feeling Russell immediately started screaming at her. He still hadn't calmed down by the next morning. She was holding Kennedy when he came over and threw his wedding ring at her. It hit her in the face. She said that it could have hit Kennedy. Russell stormed out. She wanted to call a friend but was paranoid she was being recorded from everywhere. So when she was driving later that day, she pulled over and got out to call Linda. She told her what happened. She started to cry. But little did she know, her struggle was about to take a darker turn. After a brief period of calm following Kennedy's birth, Russell's physical violence towards Taylor escalated. He had a new tactic where he would grab her hair as they were leaving an event or dinner and bang her head against the side of the car or against the glass of the passenger side while he was driving. His point being that it wouldn't leave a physical mark. He also had moments of clarity about his behaviour. One night after he had beaten the side of her head, he seemed to feel bad. But this isn't real. They don't actually feel real remorse at all. He turned to her with an expression of remorse she had never seen before. He said the next time he hit her, she should hit him back. Now, all I see here is him trying to see how far he can push her. Could he actually make her hit him? And also, he would then have the excuse of her having hit him so that then he can say that she's just as bad as he is and this is what my abuser used to do he would try and taunt me into hitting him back and I knew that he would love it if I did so he would then have something to like throw back in my face and sometimes I did hit him and then he would play up to it for days and act like he was cowering away from me when I walked past him like he was scared of me and he would pretend he was in pain and he would like touch his face where I hit him Taylor felt like he was serious so she nodded in agreement about a month later, he was banging her head against the car window and she pushed his face with her palm. He stopped, but when he looked at her, his face was filled with a look of murderous rage like she'd never seen. She instantly knew she had made a mistake. Russell remained quiet, but Taylor was terrified. The next day, he mentioned what had happened. You know when I told you to hit me back? Don't ever do that again because I almost killed you last night. One of these days, I'm afraid I'm going to kill you. It was almost as if he was saying that he was as scared of himself as she was. And there is no doubt that he would have killed her. How many stories have I told you now on this podcast where this has indeed happened? Never take an abuser's threat with a grain of salt. One of their worst fights came when she had been out with her friend Linda and she introduced her to Chris, one of the MySpace founders. A few weeks later, her and Russell attended a party where Chris saw her and said hello. She introduced him to Russell. She could tell Russell was mad. By the time they left the party, he was fuming. He started in on her as soon as they got outside. At this point, the angry and ugly words he said to her didn't have the same effect as they used to. This does happen after a while. They kind of just become words, even though they're still horrible to hear, but you're just so worn down that they just sound like, 
Oh, here we go again with this shit. He says, when you introduced me to that guy, he acted like he didn't even know you were married. You didn't tell him you were married. You were obviously with him. Taylor tried to defuse the situation by saying she hadn't been talking to him for long enough to mention the fact, but that Russell was right and she should have told him and she would do that in future right away. When they got to the car, he grabbed her head and started banging it against the side of the car. While they were driving, he reached over and kept bashing her head against the window. She had a high tolerance for pain, but on this night, he really hurt her and she was crying hard. Her head was throbbing and she had a knot on her skull, but Russell wasn't done. He kept screaming at her. He started to blame her for the beating. You just make me so angry I can't control myself. The things you do make me crazy. In that moment, she completely believed he was right. Eventually, she stopped trying to defend herself and started getting ready for bed, but she was having trouble calming down. She could feel like he had really injured her this time. She sneaked into Kennedy's room where she was asleep with her nanny Gloria. Gloria knew about Russell's abuse. She woke her up and told her Russell was being mean to her again. She hugged her and started to cry herself. She had Gloria take pictures of her head even though it was hard to see the knots through her hair. Finally she went to sleep next to her daughter completely exhausted. One thing I will never forget is how completely and utterly drained and exhausted you get after one of the really bad nights of abuse and it lasts for days afterwards you're just like a zombie and you can function 100% it's kind of like you're just going through the motions of the day and then you don't even get a good night's sleep because you have so much anxiety and often you will also have really bad dreams the next day her head was sore and her eyes were swollen from crying she wanted to let her friends know what happened because Russell had scared her so much After dropping Kennedy at school, she got out of her car and called Dwight. He told her she needed to leave, that Russell was an asshole and crazy and was never going to change. She said she knew this, but she loved him. They'd been having this conversation now for years. He said, you deserve better than this. She didn't believe him about that. She still believed that if she could just make Russell understand her loyalty and devotion to him, the abuse would finally stop. This is the most horrendous part of the relationship when you still have hope that they can change you're just so you so desperately want them to see your point of view and you can't understand why they can't because it seems so obvious but it's not because they can't it's because they won't and they don't care they don't care about your feelings Gloria came up to her later and said you're so young and you have your whole life ahead of you you need to get out of the relationship I know because I didn't do those things when I was young and I gave up my youth. You need to get out now so you can have another life with Kennedy. Taylor knew she was right, but she wasn't ready. She was afraid she'd never meet another man if she left him. She didn't feel like she deserved to be loved and respected. Gloria said if she ever needed her to help her, she would. Not long after Russell started in on her again, this time Taylor thought she had the perfect ammunition to make him stop. She told him that Gloria had taken pictures of her injuries the other night. Russell reared back and stared at her, trying to see if she was serious. He asked where they were. Of course, Taylor didn't have the pictures at the house. She knew if he found them, he would have been so angry he might have killed her. Imagine living in a house where you were actually afraid that someone might kill you at any moment. Gloria was keeping the photos at her own house. Taylor said to not do it again or she would show someone. He told her to go ahead and tell the police. If she sent him to jail, his business would be ruined and her and Kennedy would end up in the street because he wouldn't give them anything. They would end up living in a cardboard box and he would drag her through the courts. He would bankrupt her and make sure she never saw Kennedy again. So not only is he threatening her, he's also threatening his own daughter again. And this really makes me sick. To use your daughter as a threat against someone and then to also threaten to have your daughter living on the streets. It's just so disgusting. And this here is a perfect example of why women don't leave their abusers because these threats are very real and... You know, she didn't have any money at this point. Yes, she had a lot of wealthy friends that could have helped her, but she's just not seeing things clearly at this point. After this, Russell was careful not to let Gloria alone with Taylor. By this point, Russell's violent outbursts were often followed with him wanting to be intimate with her. A few days after their last fight, he wanted to have sex with her, so he started trying to be gentle. He said he loved her. It was uncomfortable and confusing, for Taylor to allow him to have that kind of closeness when he had just been so violent and screamed nasty insults at her. But she didn't feel like she had a choice because she didn't want to make him angry and so she let him have sex with her. Take note of the words she uses here. 
didn't have a choice. Let him. These words are not consent. This is rape. Just because it's your husband and you feel obliged, it doesn't mean anything. Taylor did her best to play into the moment, but it felt scary and unsafe to have this big, strong man who had been so mean hovering above her when she was naked. There were times when she lay there with tears streaming down her face. He would say, what are you fucking crying about? You were such a baby. As soon as he fell asleep, she would roll over and curl up in a ball and go to sleep. She felt absolutely degraded, almost like she had been raped at times. Again, she was raped. Clearly, she still, at the time of writing this book, hadn't accepted the fact that this was rape. But why would she want to accept it? Imagine how horrendous that would be, like on top of all this abuse that you're going through. And then to think that like this man who's your husband and the love of your life is also raping you. I mean, that's a very fucked up thought to actually have and to accept. I think, again, like we still always have this thought that like rape is only, you know, you're walking down the street alone at night and a stranger grabs you and drags you into the bushes or like a dark alleyway or something um, and, you know, beats you and all of that. Like we never think about the fact that like most rapes and the statistics are all there to show it happen by people that we know. It's people that we know who commit them. And yes, your own husband, your own boyfriend, partner can in fact rape you. Taylor hated that she wasn't able to stand up for herself. Those moments damaged her self-esteem the most because they made her feel like she didn't value herself at all and she didn't. In the winter of 2009 she was getting into the shower when Russell noticed a small scab on her lower back. He began to rage. You've got a scab in your back from fucking some guy he said. Russell's torment was starting to take its toll on her and she knew she needed help. She began seeing a therapist. She tried to get Russell to go, but he refused. He said he did two years of anger management and it didn't do him any good. After less than a year, her therapist told her she could keep coming there, but what she really needed was a marriage counsellor. All she ever did was talk about her husband, but she wouldn't be able to change any of these things without him being on board. She was consumed by a feeling of despair. That spring, she got a call from a producer looking for women for a real New Housewives franchise. For a new Real Housewives franchise? Yeah, that sounds better. Russell didn't think there was any chance she would get cast, but told her to have fun, and that was it. An incident in May 2009 showed her how foolish she had been to think she could in any way control Russell or his rages in the slightest. They met at the W Hotel to watch a Lakers game. Her friend Jennifer had just gotten engaged, and her fiancé Mark had flown in that night and invited her over to hear about their wedding plans. She decided to visit him on her way home. Her and Russell were in separate cars, so she, he stopped over to say hi too. They were on the way. <clears throat> they were on the way back. Excuse me. <laughs> I fluffed that one up. They were on the back patio by the pool. Got that. Finally, Russell decided to leave, and Taylor said she would stay on a little longer. After he left, Mark asked her how things were going with him. They both knew about the abuse. She tried to smile, but it was hard to deny how bad things were. She said they had good days and bad days. They walked her to the gate as she was leaving and she said, if anything happens to me, just promise that you will take care of Kennedy. They exchanged a concerned look. Jennifer said that the fact she was even worrying about this was a sign that she needed to get out. Mark agreed and said he would help her. If she needed it, he would get her an apartment, whatever it took to get her and Kennedy to safety. This totally warms my heart. Having people offering to help, but without pressuring you to leave is so amazing and exactly what you need in that moment. And especially the fact that it's not even her friend, it's her friend's fiance. And to think that like she has someone that cares about her that much is just amazing. Sorry, there is a siren going past. Um, typical New York sounds. Sounds of the city. Just then, they heard a noise over the gate. All of a sudden, Russell came out of nowhere, talking under his breath. You're not going to take my wife away from me, he said. 
He punched Mark in the back of the head and eventually threw him in the pool. As Mark tried to get out, Russell repeatedly punched him. Then he saw Taylor and threw her in with him. He held her head under the water. Then he started fighting with Mark again. Jennifer tried to get between them and Russell also threw her in the pool. He then threw one of her dogs in with them while the other one barked frantically nearby. Jennifer was freaking out because pitbulls can't swim and her dog was at the bottom of the pool. Russell started punching Mark again and again. Jennifer managed to get herself and the dog out. She grabbed a fire log and started swinging it at Russell's head. She said after that when she saw Russell's face, she had never seen anything like it before. There was no expression there, just a vacant, unblinking stare. She hit him on the back of the head, but it didn't faze him. He kept punching Mark. Taylor, meanwhile, was trying to pull herself out. Finally, Russell stopped and ran out to his car and drove away. Mark's face was covered in blood. They called an ambulance. Taylor was crying hysterically and shaking. She had been certain he was going to kill Mark. She kept saying she was sorry. But also in her mind, she was already formulating a plan to protect Russell. Mark was taken to hospital, his injuries extensive. She started calling plastic surgeon friends to find someone who could sew up his face. She could hear Jennifer talking to the police. He was trying to drown her. He was trying to kill her. I'm afraid he's going to kill her. Taylor wasn't thinking she was finally handed her way out. She was instead busy trying to determine how she was going to fix this mess to keep her husband out of jail and hold their family together. Mark's injuries ended up requiring 20 stitches and he had torn off three inches of hair and forehead and five of his teeth had been knocked out. When the cops questioned her, she tried to give them an account of what had happened without implicating Russell more than she had to. She thought of all the times he had threatened her with what would happen if he ever ended up in jail and she was terrified that she wouldn't be able to support Kennedy if he got locked up. This sounds completely unbelievable and it's easy to see how anyone would be frustrated here at Taylor, but the fear of what the abuser has threatened to do is very real and there have been many, many incidents where threats have become real. Even when victims have gone to the cops and to the courts, save the judgment, even though it is hard. Taylor stayed at Jennifer's house that night. While Jennifer was concerned, she was also furious at Taylor. Now you're letting your problems affect everybody else. Maybe you're not going to do anything about this, but I'm not going to let somebody treat me like this. Just because this maniac is part of your life, now he's hurt somebody else. Taylor knew she had a point, but she was determined to protect Russell, no matter the cost of to her or her friendship you kind of have to agree with Jennifer here like she and Mark tried to do everything to help Taylor but there's only so much you can do and what they went through here is horrendous like Russell could have killed them all and then to see your friend try to cover it up and excuse his actions after everything you've tried to do to help her it's just so hard to comprehend and I get it even as a victim myself who understands the victim's mindset because I've been there, I do sometimes still find myself judging other victims' behavior and I'll be completely honest about that. Jennifer would barely talk to her after this and Mark was furious after getting over the initial shock. Russell's friend Rick called to let her know that Russell was staying there with him. He had concocted a story about how Mark had started the whole thing. He had actually gone straight to the cops to make a complaint against Mark. Rick sounded like he suspected the truth, but he still went along with Russell's version of events. This is how cunning an abuser is. After something like this, he knows that he's screwed. And so he tried to do damage control by getting to the cops first before Mark did. Russell finally called Taylor. Instead of apologizing, he blamed the whole thing on her. He said she shouldn't have been talking to her friends about their relationship. You're such a crybaby. That's right. Run to all your fucking friends. Go tell everybody how abusive I am and try to get everybody to hate me. Get the fuck out of my life. If you want to go get an apartment and you want Mark to help you, just get the fuck away from me. You caused this. You've just got to run to your friends, he said. Finally, she managed to calm him down, but then she had to deal with her friends. Taylor knew she was going to have to convince Mark and Jennifer to drop the charges against Russell. She says this is something she still has a lot of guilt about today. While she was protecting him, she was more terrified of him than ever. She was more certain than ever that he had the capacity to kill her. Before she went back to the house, she confirmed with Rick that he was still at his place. Later that day, she called Jennifer, who was still furious. She said Mark was going to bury Russell. Taylor was embarrassed because she knew there was no way Jennifer could understand how she could still love him and remain loyal to him. 
She said to Taylor, everybody looks the other way about how he treats you because you ask us to, but now you're letting it hurt other people because you can't get this under control. If you didn't have this person in your life, he would never have been around me or Mark, and then all of this never would have happened. She said she didn't know what they were going to do, that they first needed to get Mark taken care of, and then they'd figure out all of the stuff with the charges. Taylor drove over to their dentist's office and took care of the $10,000 bill. Russell came home that evening. It was tense. She was afraid of him but also felt sorry for him. She said it felt like he almost couldn't help being a bad guy. She told him Jennifer was furious. He seemed unusually nervous. He asked what she thought was going to happen. She said she asked Jennifer to not press charges. This is when he told her he had gone to the police to press charges against Mark. She looked at him in disbelief. It was something else to realise he was so calculating that even in all of the chaos he'd been able to gather his thoughts enough to have the idea of protecting himself by getting to the police first. She understood there and then that he would always be a step ahead of her. She received calls from the Beverly Hills PD because Russell had attempted to kill her so they were required to investigate. They expressed grave concern for her safety but she tried to keep her tone light saying she didn't believe he would kill her. Jennifer called to tell her they weren't going to press charges but that the fact she was living in this situation was ridiculous and that she needed to get out because he was going to kill her one of these days. He is crazy, he is psychotic, there's something mentally wrong with him. She knew the situation was going to change her relationship with Jennifer despite them dropping the charges. She wasn't ready to leave so she didn't want to hear her warnings. With all of her other friends she could make excuses but now Jennifer had seen Russell's behaviour and there was no explaining away his behaviour. A small part of her was relieved someone had witnessed it, but it was still humiliating. Jennifer and her didn't speak for a year after that. I completely get what Taylor is saying here. Once I had finally told my friend everything and I would meet her whenever I could and I would fill her in on what had been happening, I knew then that she would always hold me accountable. I couldn't then say that, you know, one day he's been abusive and then suddenly the next day start explaining and excusing his behaviour because she knew Whereas with my other friends who weren't living in the same country, I could tell them isolated incidents while I was upset. But then when they asked about it again, I could just excuse it by saying, oh, it was a one-off or he was drunk or he was stressed. And, you know, I was upset, so I was exaggerating. Meanwhile, I thought they were accepting the excuses and the behaviours and believing what I told them. But I found out afterward, years later, when I left, that they always knew that things weren't right. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there for this week. That was part one of the story of Taylor and Russell Armstrong. I'm going to drop the next episode on Monday, so exactly a week from today. Um, And I'm going to hopefully get into a better flow of uh, recording and releasing on a better schedule than I have been but life has been a little hectic this year um so as usual I'll leave all links in the bio to the episode and once again you can always reach out to me on social media at mandgogs on all platforms see y'all next week